Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. As you turn to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, remind yourself of where we left off. The Lord Jesus was in Samaria at Jacob's well. He had asked a woman for a drink of water. The Lord turned the conversation to the living water that he alone can offer. The Lord pointed this woman to eternal redemption, but she still did not understand. We pick up our text in John 4 with verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. One day last summer, a group of teenagers gathered around a fire, led by one of the older teens playing a guitar. The music was respectful. It was upbeat. They sang praises to the Lord. Across town, at the very same moment, a group of adults were meeting together at their regular Wednesday evening prayer meeting at their church. The room was totally quiet because the group was silently reflecting on how God had been so good to them. And when they did speak, They prayed for friends and loved ones who didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. Then they prayed for others they knew who were going through some tough times. Earlier that same afternoon, in that same town, a group of daycare teachers at a Christian daycare led a group of four-year-olds on a nature walk. They went into a nearby field and the boys and girls looked at the beauty and the variety of the flowers that God has created. They saw and they chased some butterflies. As these boys and girls realized that God made each one of these butterflies, they began to understand that God had made each one of them too. Each boy, each girl, beautiful in their own way. And on that same day, in that same town, a businessman knelt down in a hospital and wept as he thanked God for sparing his wife, bringing her through a very serious medical procedure. He wept as he realized how good God had been to him, but how at the same time this man had been neglecting his own relationship with God. 
He wept at how he had allowed his job and his career to take too much of his time, to the point that he had not spent the needed time with his wife and his children. As he knelt in that room, he repented of his sin and recommitted himself to serving the Lord, to being the type of husband and father that Jesus Christ wants him to be. Across town, that same evening, a single mom knelt down and smiled as she watched her two young children sleeping. She thanked God for the gift of those children. She desperately missed her husband, who had died in a car accident three months before. But she sensed a peace inside because she knew God would take care of her and the kids. Each situation was different. Each expression of worship was different. But the one thing that they had in common was that in each case, they experienced genuine worship of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God. Enoch had such close fellowship with the Lord that he never died. Isaiah, seeing the Lord in a vision, fell on his face and cried out for forgiveness. David danced before the Lord, celebrating and rejoicing. The children of Israel fasted and gathered for a solemn assembly, waiting to hear God's instructions for them before they entered into the promised land. Jonah worshipped God from the belly of a fish. Solomon, he assembled choirs, trumpeters, and people to parade in a celebration at the dedication of the new temple in Jerusalem. The exiles who returned with Nehemiah to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, when they heard Ezra stand and read from the scroll of the law, they stood as one, honoring and reading the words of the Lord. Daniel earned the nickname Camel Knees because he prayed so often to the Lord, even though the decree had been issued by Darius the Persian king, that no one should pray to Yahweh. This type of obedience ended up meaning that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Jeremiah wept as he preached God's message of judgment. Elijah called down fire from heaven, bringing glory to the Lord on Mount Carmel. In the New Testament, Stephen glorified God even as the stones began to slam into his body and began to take his life away. Paul and Silas bruised and bleeding from a beating for proclaiming Christ. They sang hymns late into the evening in their prison cell. A man who had been lame from birth after being healed by Jesus went to the temple, leaping and shouting for joy, rejoicing over the fact that Jesus had healed him. At that same temple, a widowed woman with no fanfare and seeking to avoid any attention from others, she quietly placed her last two coins in the temple offering. But of course, our greatest example of worship is the Lord himself. Jesus preached in open fields from a boat and in private gatherings with his disciples. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He took his disciples up on a mountain for a mountaintop experience of revelation at his transfiguration. He cried out his heart in Gethsemane, and he did this again from the cross. And what did all of these events from the Bible have in common? They represent different experiences, different expressions of worship, but it was all genuine worship. We have before us one of the most foundational texts from the Word of God, 
for understanding true worship. Now, verse 15, it reminds us that this woman really did not understand what Christ was teaching her. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Just like Nicodemus, this woman kept thinking of the physical things of this world instead of the eternal. She didn't want to have to keep coming back to this well. Remember what she had asked back in verse 12, are you greater than Jacob? She was starting to understand that at the very least, this Jewish stranger was greater than Jacob. And if he could make it so, she didn't have to keep going back for water day after day after day. Well, she was all for it. Notice what Christ does next. Starting with verse 16, we read, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. Think of why Christ shifted the subject. This woman already failed to grasp who Jesus is, and she totally misunderstood this entire concept of living water. People don't like to talk about the spiritual. Even in church, it's easier to only talk about the physical aspects of life. And so with this statement, go call your husband and come here. Yes, proper etiquette dictated that her husband should have been there. But at the very heart of this, Jesus was confronting the issue. She didn't understand her need for a savior. She didn't understand the depth of her depravity. She failed to recognize the true nature of her thirst. Jesus wanted to make sure She understood that her greatest need was not just the water that came from Jacob's well. She needed to deal with her sin. She needed to be rescued from the despair, the guilt, and the hopelessness of being separated from the Lord. She could not drink of the living water that Christ was offering if she did not deal first with the tragic nature of her sinful life. Jesus quickly struck right at the heart of the problem, that the problem was her sin. The Lamb of God stood before her, offering to take away her sin. He deals with sin in those who seek to follow him. Notice the deity of Christ in this text with this simple statement. Go, call your husband and come here. Jesus demonstrated that he had knowledge that no mere man could have. This is something even the woman understood by the time of verse 19 that at the very least, Jesus had to be a prophet or a messenger of God. The woman responds to Jesus by saying, I have no husband. This could have been true. We don't know if the men died or if she'd been divorced five times, but the wording suggests divorce because death is not a sin. Nothing would have been her fault if her husbands had just died, unless, of course, she just killed them all. She's portrayed here like a Hollywood star, five former husbands and a live-in man she's not married to. She's portrayed as a sinner in need of living water, and Jesus had struck a nerve. You have to think here that this statement from this woman, I have no husband, was designed to brush off this talk of her record with men. She was holding back, but the Lord didn't let it end there. He knew that she actually had told the truth but she was still holding back. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband for you have had 
five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Even if your husbands kept dying, rabbis of the day disapproved of more than three marriages, and some rabbis would allow two or three divorces at the most. But this woman had been married five times and was now committing adultery. Couples today live together outside of marriage, and they like to claim that God recognizes their marriage, that they are married in the eyes of God. But here, the Lord Jesus, God the Son, he confronts this line of thinking. You see, the assumption all throughout this text is that she was living in sin. She was living with a man that she was not married to. Jesus knew it. And Jesus knew it wasn't marriage. The creator of man, the creator of marriage, considered this, no matter how dedicated they were to one another, he considered this to be sin, a cheap imitation of his beautiful plan for a man and a woman to come together, united under the bond of marriage. The Lord did not shame her. There's a lesson there for us. He didn't shame her in her sin. He stated the truth of where she was at and let it stand on its own. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Because Jesus knew the details of her past, she knew he had to be from God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 34. Remember what we said in our last study. The Samaritans accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The first five books, that's it. That's what they accepted, not the prophets. So what exactly did this woman mean that Jesus was a prophet? Deuteronomy 34, take a look at verse 10. This is the record of the death of Moses. Verse 10, speaking of Moses. But since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now hold this thought and turn back a few pages to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Follow along, Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. The prediction of the prophet in verse 18, the prophet like Moses is Jesus Christ. Notice the warning that starts with verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Here's what we need to understand. The Samaritans took these two passages, Deuteronomy 34 and Deuteronomy 18, 
and said that if no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, then that is the absolute standard from God himself until the coming of the prophet, like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. In other words, they use these two passages to justify their position of rejecting the teachings of the prophets of the Old Testament. Because in their line of thinking, there could only be two prophets, Moses and the one coming, like Moses. But that doesn't mean at this point in John 4 that this woman had all of this in mind. She saw that Jesus had the ability to know her past. He must be from God. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy, but take another look at verse 20, back in the Gospel of John. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. This goes back to what we discussed before with the two different mountains and the two different temples. The rebuilt temple of the Jews was nothing like the temple before it that had been built by Solomon. Not long after the temple was rebuilt, Manasseh, the son of the high priest, married the daughter of the Persian governor of Samaria. The governor of Jerusalem ordered him to dissolve this marriage because he was unequally yoked. But Manasseh refused to, and so we read in Nehemiah 13.28 that Nehemiah drove him out of Jerusalem. But that was not the end of the story because the Persian governor of Samaria then made his son-in-law, Manasseh, the high priest of the Samaritans, and arranged to build a temple for him on Mount Gerizim. That temple stood for almost 200 years. That's a long time. You see, the point is that their entire religion, it started with disobedience to the Lord. Turn this time to Deuteronomy 12. Now, this is a short little passage, but Deuteronomy 12 sets up our understanding of the two different temples. Take a look at verse 5. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of all your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. Notice this part of the verse, where the Lord your God chooses for his dwelling place. Stay right here in this verse because we'll come right back to this. Both the Jews and the Samaritans recognized this passage, but they came to different conclusions of what this meant. Because most of the Jews recognized the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, they of course recognized that Jerusalem was the place for the temple of God. It was there that David determined to build a temple to God, and it was there that God authorized Solomon to build it. But for the Samaritans, their text of Deuteronomy 12, it read a little different. The Hebrew scriptures read, where the Lord your God chooses. But the Samaritans, their version of this verse reads, seek the place the Lord your God has chosen, has chosen, past tense. So out of this understanding, they went through the first five books of the Old Testament to look for the place that God supposedly had already chosen for his temple. They went to Genesis chapter 12, where it's recorded that Abraham built an altar at Shechem, which is right next to Mount Gerizim. They went to passages like Deuteronomy 11 that point out it was on Mount Gerizim that the blessings of God to the people were to be shouted out once they had entered into the promised land. Their version of scripture joined the giving of the Ten Commandments to Mount Gerizim. 
head over to Deuteronomy 27. Now, this is another one of those places where the Samaritans changed the Hebrew text. Deuteronomy 27, looking at verses 4 and 5, starting in verse 4, we read, Therefore it shall be, when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them. Now the Hebrew text reads that this took place exactly as we read in the English. But the Samaritans took out Mount Ebal and made it read Mount Gerizim. They changed the Hebrew scriptures to make the focus of their worship on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans even insisted that Mount Gerizim was the highest mountain in all the world, even though Mount Ebal, which was just across the valley, was obviously higher. The Samaritans claimed that the Garden of Eden was on top of Mount Gerizim, that Adam was made from the dust of this mountain. They claimed that the Ark of Noah came to rest on this mountain, that this is where Jacob saw his vision of the ladder reaching from earth to heaven. On and on the claims went, not based on truth, but based on the lies of men. Now, Mount Gerizim was actually a place with a rich history in the Old Testament. Nearby at Shechem, this is where Joshua had given his last address to the tribes of Israel in Joshua 24. But the Samaritans had turned it into a place where truth was mixed with error. Pride led them to lie, to exaggerate their claims to the ancient fathers. Reminds me a lot of the Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists. Truth mixed in with error. And you could not prove to the Samaritans that they were wrong about this because they didn't accept most of the Old Testament. They didn't accept the parts of Scripture that teach about the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews destroyed this temple on Mount Gerizim around 128 B.C., and this was the hot issue of the day. If a Jew and a Samaritan were actually going to sit down and talk, this is what they would debate. And I cannot help but wonder if this woman headed in this direction with the conversation, just to keep the focus off of herself, to keep the focus off of her own sin. She had been caught in sin, and her sin meant she was supposed to offer a sacrifice. Standing before this Jewish man of God, she assumed he would point her to Jerusalem. Jesus responds back in John, starting in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Try to remember when Jesus refers to this mountain, they could see Mount Gerizim from Jacob's well. Mount Gerizim was the physical backdrop behind this entire conversation. Woman, believe me, in verse 21. Jesus was assuring her. He was giving her the truth. The hour is coming, pointing again to the hour of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. This coming hour would affect all worship. Notice this with me in the second part of verse 21. You Samaritans, plural. The worship for the Samaritans would change. It wouldn't be at their mountain, and it wouldn't be in Jerusalem. 
There was little to be gained by a long debate about this because in just a short time, neither mountain would be a place of worship for those who worship the Father. Jesus knew that within a generation, the temple at Jerusalem, it'd be destroyed, and neither mountain would have a temple on it. A very important principle that the church has failed to understand is that in the age that was about to dawn, buildings made with hands have very little relevance in the program of God. Because in the church age, each believer is now a temple of God, the Spirit. A church building is not the house of God. You are. If your heart is right, if you have reconciled yourself to the Father through the blood of Christ, you can worship the Father at any place and at any time. The important question is not where you physically worship, but how you worship the Lord. Buildings then, a temple or a church today, they can be helpful, but buildings are given for the benefit of men, not God. The woman said to Jesus, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and Jesus responded, That true worship is of God the Father. Now, to the whole issue about worshiping in Jerusalem or at Mount Gerizim. It wasn't direct, but Jesus did address this. Notice verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. You worship. Again, this is a plural pronoun, meaning you Samaritans. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Jesus was not saying that the Samaritans could not know God. Jesus was not doubting their sincerity, but he was testifying that the one that they worshiped was unknown to them. Worship of God needs to be centered in truth. Salvation is of the Jews, and what the Samaritans worshiped, it wasn't based on truth or knowledge. It was based on lies. The Jews weren't perfect either, but at least they knew who they worshipped. Romans 3.22, it teaches us, The oracles of God were committed to the Jews. The revelation of God came through the Jews. The Messiah himself came from the Jews. Genesis 49, verse 10, in both the Hebrew and the Samaritan scripture should have taught them this. Salvation was of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David, and of the city of Bethlehem. Psalm 76, verse 1 teaches us, In Judah God is known. In Judah God is known. His name is great in Israel. Salvation for both Jews and Gentiles is found in the Messiah. The Messiah that was foretold in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus did not press the point. But this should have made it clear that any claim of the Samaritans that Mount Gerizim was the proper place of worship was not according to the absolute standard of truth that God had revealed through the Jews. The way that the Samaritans had been worshiping God was a mixture of truth and error, and this was simply unacceptable to God. Be careful with this today. Be Bereans. Be discerning. Worship God in spirit and truth. Verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 
a shift in wording. In verse 21, the hour is coming. Now we read in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is. Here's what this means. Jesus was telling this woman, not only is the hour coming when Christ would go to the cross, not only is the time coming when men will worship in spirit and truth, but because Christ was present already in this world, this time of true worship of the Father was already present in the person and ministry of Jesus before he went to the cross. True worship can only take place through Christ. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. The pouring out of the Spirit of God would not come upon the church until after the resurrection of Christ. But the Savior, he was already present in the world, and men and women could worship the Father through him. This is why Christ was able to say, the hour is coming, and now is. Think about this next part of verse 23. When the true worshipers will worship, The intent was to let this woman know that it really was not going to matter which mountain God was worshipped on, because the time was now at hand when those with genuine worship of the Father would worship in spirit and truth. You see, the bottom line is that the Jews were saying true worship was worship that took place in Jerusalem. The Samaritans were saying true worship was on Mount Gerizim, and Jesus came teaching true worship is found when you worship the Father in spirit and truth. Worship is not about a place, but about God. Skip down to verse 24 for a second. Notice the words, God is spirit. God the Father is invisible. God is not confined to space and time or to the boundaries of men. Jesus had revealed the Father to us. So here's the teaching. In verse 23, Jesus wasn't referring to the Holy Spirit, but instead he was referring to an attitude of the heart which acknowledges God and his sovereignty over our lives. But this type of attitude of the heart can only come about by the regeneration of the Spirit of God. This is why we have dead churches, unredeemed, gathering together. They may worship in the name of Christ. They can call themselves a church, but without the Spirit of God living in them. It is not worship that God accepts. God can only be worshiped in spirit and truth. Listen, in verse 23, it should be as the New King James records, worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now this becomes important because in the rules of language, the one preposition, in this case, the word in, it means that the preposition governs both nouns meaning that these are not two separate aspects of worship that can be offered to God. Our worship is to be Christ-centered, worship that is based on a personal relationship with the Lord made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our worship must be based on the absolute truth of Jesus Christ and the absolute truth of his word. God is seeking for men and women to worship him this way. Now think about what this means for us. While we are worried about the economy, God is seeking people to worship him. While we are worried about paying the bills, paying the mortgage, God is seeking for people to worship him. While churches get caught up in the numbers game, while churches are focused on buildings, God is looking for men and women to worship him. And what God is finding in this land is padded pews, 
beautiful buildings, stained glass windows, and plenty of programs. People focused outwardly on how they dress, how they look. God is seeking people who want to find him. Remember, the Samaritans had the dead religion of men, and Jesus was trying to get this woman to think of a loving father in heaven who desires men and women to worship him his way. The English word for worship, it used to be spelled worth-ship, W-O-R-T-H, meaning to acknowledge the worth. And that's the idea. You see, God is looking for men and women to acknowledge his worth. It's a matter of the heart. He wants you to be honest and open with him. We have a very Western version of worship. A lot of traditions have been added. God doesn't care about your traditions. Worship in spirit and truth. He can be worshiped many different ways in any place his people are. He cares how you worship from the heart. Christ-centered worship. And he cares that your worship is reserved for him. Verses 25 and 26, our last two verses. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, how much this woman knew and understood about the Messiah at this point, it's hard to know. This woman was thinking that this was one of those issues that would be settled when the Messiah came. Because the Samaritans considered the Messiah as the prophet who would come and reveal the truth. He was the coming teacher. Jesus proclaimed to her, I who speak to you am he. The one who sat by the well asking for a drink was the Messiah. He indeed could provide living water, and he indeed was greater than their father, Jacob. This was an absolute claim to deity. Jesus was telling her, you're waiting for the Messiah? I've come, and I am. I am speaking to you. Both Jews and Samaritans had waited for centuries to hear what this woman heard from the lips of the Son of God. Gracia Burnham was with her husband, Martin. They served as missionaries for 17 years in the Philippines. Martin was a jungle pilot, delivering mail and supplies to other missionaries who were out in the field. In May of 2001, they were on a much-needed brief vacation close to where they were serving. They had gone there to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary when they were kidnapped by rebels by a group of Muslims. Now, most of these rebels, they're just children who have been taken from their homes and forced into guerrilla warfare. They were taken to one of the islands that was a stronghold for this group of terrorists. Now, for 376 days, Gracia was held by this Filipino group that's connected with Al-Qaeda. Much of what she went through is not fit to mention. They were starved and forced to march through the jungle. They saw other hostages abused and beheaded. And by November of 2001, only Gracia, Martin, and one other hostage were still in captivity. Over a year in captivity, they faced near starvation, constant exhaustion, gun battles. They had to watch the terrorists murder people again and again. They searched their souls. It felt like God had forgotten about them. 
In June of 2002, the Philippine army launched an assault against this group. Martin was killed. Gracia was wounded but was freed. But here's what impacted me from their lives. When they were held captive, one of the soldiers that was put in charge of her was a 14-year-old boy named Ahmed. Gracia admits it was not easy to like this young man for hoarding food when she had none, throwing stones at her while she bathed in the river and pushing her along the trail saying, faster, faster. But by the grace of God, Gracia said that she learned to pray for a way to love Ahmed. Her chance came when he was wounded in a firefight. He had soiled himself. This young Muslim soldier was embarrassed. She said she thought of her own son. And then she felt sorry for Ahmed. She came to the point where she actually felt love for this young man. This love, the love of Christ, led her to wash his clothes in the river before he was taken into the jungle on a stretcher by the other soldiers. He was bound, he was gagged, and he was stark raving mad. Gracia doesn't know what happened to him, but through her ministry since then, four of the young Muslim men that held her captive have now come to know Jesus Christ. Gracia continues to travel, telling others of God's grace, reminding others that it is possible by the grace of God to love someone that hates you, to love someone that the world rejects. Consider the love that Christ had for this woman at the well. The world had rejected her. God the Son saw her as someone to love, someone worth dying for. Those who need Christ the most are the very ones that he came for. The Apostle Paul testified much of the same when he wrote to the church of Corinth, telling them, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the reason that Paul lists is that no flesh should glory in his presence. And a little bit later on, down in the passage, Paul testifies, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. You see, the only thing we have to glory in is the Lord Jesus Christ, because we were once the rejected who have found love and acceptance in Christ. Be thankful for our redemption. Be thankful for the sanctifying work of Christ in our lives. And let us make sure that our pride and our sin nature never gets in the way of love to those who need it most. The Apostle Paul would be on the internet. <laughs> That's a statement I often make when I speak at conferences just to raise the understanding that the internet is an amazing mission field. If your church or ministry is looking to get started, head to our affiliate page on our website, returntotheword.com. It's under the About tab, listed under Podcasting Resources. There you will find the companies that we recommend for podcast art, website hosting, and even the microphones and the equipment to use. We've also partnered with Dave Jackson in the School of Podcasting. He can teach you all you need to know 
to get started. Again, you can find those resources on our webpage, returntotheword.com, under the About tab, listed under Podcasting Resources. The mission field is now at your fingertips. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.